0: This is the Washington State Indivisible podcast, part of the Demcast family of podcasts. I'm your host, Stefan Cox. Today, as part of our town hall series in partnership with the Washington Indivisible Network and Indivisible Tacoma, we speak with four candidates running for state representative in very competitive races. Join us for a conversation with Dan Bernowski, Alicia Rule, Representative Sharon Shoemake, and April Berg. This was recorded live on the evening of Tuesday, October 13th. We are enormously fortunate tonight to have an extraordinary lineup of candidates who are running for the state legislature. All of them in very close races. We will be hearing from candidate for representative in the 28th LD, Dan Bernoski; representative Sharon Shoemake; and candidate for representative Alicia Rule, both in the 42nd LD, and April Berg, candidate for representative in the 44th LD. Because April has another commitment tonight, we will be playing our pre-taped conversation for you. So, with that, let us meet our first guest, Dan. Bernowski is a West Pierce County firefighter. He also holds a master's of public administration from the University of Washington. He is running for representative in position two in the 28th LD. This is a district that includes Lakewood and parts of Tacoma. Uh, Dan, welcome. It's it's, uh, so good to see you. Uh, Thanks for being here tonight.
1: Thank you for having me. The pleasure is absolutely all mine.
0: So, look, um, you're a firefighter, as I mentioned. I think an appropriate place to start this conversation is by talking about this year's record wildfire season. What we'll are your thoughts there? Um, how do you feel we should be looking at this problem going forward? I, I, I hate to use this term, but are we looking at the new normal?
1: Yeah. So, you know, we have a, a very educated audience here, a, a smart audience. And I think they get that. Unfortunately, Yes. This is the new normal, uh, you know, decades of inaction on climate policy and ways that we haven't addressed climate change has really led us to where we are now. We're having record-breaking wildfires. We're spending uh, more money than we ever have on suppression efforts and uh, making sure we have enough personnel to put the fires out. But, you know, because we failed to address the initial issue, climate change, um, you know, we can only... Uh, invest so much money into suppression before uh, it gets uh, out of hand. And, and I think it has gotten out of hand several times this year. Uh, you know, we've been choked out by smoke um, and, you know, not because of, uh, you know, failures of investments in Washington State in particular, but because uh, we as a society, we as a, as a globe have really failed to address this climate change issue. So uh, it is going to be the new normal. It is the new normal. And unfortunately, uh, we're going to have to deal with it as it comes. Um, But, uh, that just makes the climate crisis all that much more, uh, uh, it it just gives us the, the imperative to act now sooner rather than later to make sure that we address this issue. Um, to try to reverse some of the effects that we've been seeing uh, because of human-made climate change.
0: Well, one of the effects that you talk about in addressing the climate crisis is you say you would like to address the disparities between how climate change impacts people differently depending on their economic status. And I'm wondering if you could expand on that a little bit and talk about how that's playing out in the 28th. And then also in your mind, what can be done there?
1: Yeah, so I think, you know, the disparities between Uh, those most affected by climate change and those most affected by COVID and those most affected by their socioeconomic status um, is only exacerbated by this particular issue. So, you know, what are we going to do? So we're going to have to, uh, you know, really focus on a lot of those inequities and, you know, where people are being forced to live because of, you know, lack of affordable housing closer to cities, you know, people are being Uh, In this state, in addition to uh, California and Oregon, people are being forced to move uh, further out into the wilderness where, you know, those urban interface areas where, uh, you know, these uh, fires are just a a lot more closer to home, literally. So, um, you know, those are some of the things that we have to to address is, you know, I, I think... You know that that lack of affordable housing piece has a direct correlation to disparities by those affected by climate change, wildfires, COVID. It all ing- it all intermingles. It's all it's all inclusive. It, it all affects one another. And you know you know we have to uh, look at this very holistically to make sure that that we address a lot of these inequities that people are unfortunately facing.
0: You mentioned housing, and I want to circle back on that in a second. But you also mentioned COVID and. Experts are predicting that we may be heading into another wave here uh, as we get into fall and winter. You're a first responder. What have we learned and, and what do you think needs to happen going forward?
1: Yeah. So, you know, we've learned a lot. We've learned a lot about how the virus is transmitted. Um, you know, you when you when we first were dealing with COVID, you would see a lot of um, Uh, you know, disinfecting and and wiping down of of tables and items and and all that kind of stuff, and that's very important. But what we've we've learned is that this is a, a respiratory disease that's transmitted via droplets, via people being in close contact. And this issue is going to, uh, again, you know, we're, we're definitely going to see a second wave. And the reason we're going to see a second wave is because you know the weather is getting colder. We're going to be forced indoors. Um, you know, it's going to be really difficult, especially during the holidays, to be able to interact with family that we haven't seen for a long time. And and do so safely. So that's going to be a huge challenge. So, you know, the indoor issue is going to be a huge problem. And, uh, you know, that gets into the whole uh, circulation, air circulation, making sure we, we have good ventilation within buildings. Um, you know, what else have we, uh, you know, what, what What can we do to help address this? Well, you know, we can continue to, to be socially distant, but that's going to be difficult while we're indoors. But, you know, mask wearing is very important. Uh, you know, working at the fire station for 24 hours on 24-hour shifts, I work in close proximity to a lot of firefighters that are out there uh, still dealing with the public who is sick, and, and our best protection for ourselves is, is mask wearing. And, uh, you know, fortunately, uh, we've been you know since the outbreak we haven't had a whole lot of folks test positive um, but you know that's also uh, an important point that I'd like to also like tag on to that you know we we, just one profession are being forced in a close proximity by virtue of what we do uh, with other people. Um, I'd like everyone to keep in mind that uh, folks working uh, nursing homes, folks that work in adult family homes, folks that work in assisted living, hospitals, etc., you know, they by virtue of their profession have to be within close proximity to to people that might or might not be sick. So, you know, we need to keep that in mind and and those are some of the best practices that I think we can continue to do to move forward as we're forced to move back indoors uh, as the weather turns a lot colder.
0: Older. You're talking about essential workers there, and and you know we can touch on how the uh, the economy of the 28th has been impacted by the pandemic, but specifically because you're a union member, and a lot of the the you know the, the uh, jobs that you just mentioned are union jobs. You're a strong union supporter. I wonder if maybe you could just kind of frame it around the importance of unions in the recovery, in in bringing back and and re- maintaining living wage jobs.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So. You know, I, I I believe this wholeheartedly, and, and, and because I live and breathe it, um, unions and organized labor are the single best bulwark for maintaining living wages in the middle class in the United States of America. And I'm really proud of the work that unions across this country, country have done, whether it's the International Association of Firefighters, whether it's the International Longshore Workers Union, whether it's SEIU, UFCW, we've made... Uh, leaps and bounds in doing the research and providing as much adequate uh, personal protective equipment as we possibly could to essential workers. And that was entirely on labor and labor compelling the employer, labor doing the research and uh, acquiring the PPE that's needed. So that way, we can go out and do that essential work and stay as safe as we possibly can. And uh, you know, the, and another you know uh, thing I'd like to tag on to that is you know as we move forward. We need to make sure that if a worker does come down with covid uh, because of something they were exposed to on the job that they're protected that they have access to to medical care that they can uh, be taken care of so that way they can get healthy and get back to work as quickly as possible it's uh, it's going to be a real challenge but organized labor really is on the forefront of taking care of their own people and people that are unorganized for that matter you don't have to be a dues-paying member to enjoy the benefits of what, you know, unions are fighting for. Hey, we're all on the same team. We all understand the value of work and uh, we're just in it to to make sure that you can earn a living wage and do so safely um, regardless of whether or not you're a union member. So yeah, I'm real proud of that.
0: I'll read a quote from your website. You say, quote, uh, you stand in solidarity with workers and consumers to create a health care system that keeps us all safe and healthy, directly related. Um, first of all, I'd ask you, how, how has the pandemic changed the conversation around health care? And then how do you see a pathway to affordable health care for Washingtonians?
1: Yeah. So, you know, so many people lost their jobs through no fault of their own because of COVID. They had to You know whether that you work in a restaurant or whether you work in a movie theater or whether you're in a a different place by virtue of what you did for a living you had to be laid off there was no safe way for you to come to work uh so you know and, and it was good science behind it i mean you know we had to you know put a pause on certain industries and shut down the economy for a period of time so that way we could really get a lid on the coronavirus outbreak so when folks you know have to get laid off or they have to quit through no fault of their own a lot of folks that relied on employer-based health care unfortunately lost access to that particular health care so you know this is again you know you're, you're seeing a certain issue with employer based health care that can be problematic when you know you literally cannot go out and find another job right now so, what do you do for healthcare? We got to take care of those people. We need to make sure that uh, they have that access to healthcare, uh, and and we need we have we bear the responsibility in in helping them uh, get that access to healthcare. So, when they do are able to get back to work. Um, you know, they don't fall behind because they couldn't uh, see the dentist, couldn't see the doctor, fill prescriptions, all the kinds of you know routine medical procedures that we take for granted when we are working. You know, we need to make sure that that they have access to that healthcare under the, those circumstances. And and yeah, that's going to be a real challenge. You know, we're going to have to expand healthcare for a lot more people um, because the the virus isn't going away anytime soon. A lot of people are going to be out of work for some time to come. Uh, because the, you know the vaccines, you know, probably not going to come out till twenty twenty one, summer fall twenty twenty one. So that's a long time from now. And then you know, is everybody going to have access to that vaccine? You know, there's going to be a lot of challenges in play. So in the meantime, in the interim, certainly everybody should have access to healthcare. Nobody should be without healthcare right now.
0: I'll, I'll just ask you because I think it's important. How does your vision there differ from that of your opponent? So uh,
1: I know from what little I've I've heard from my opponent. Uh, you know, he uh, wants to rely on a quote unquote market based solution. Um, is there a specific policy there in place? I don't know. I haven't heard it. Um, but, you know, what, where I differ is, uh, you know, there's a task force in place. The Washington State Legislature is working to, again, expand access to health care, make sure that the most people have the most amount of health care for the least amount of cost. And when it comes to researching a specific policy, there's some great policy experts that are coming up with some good ideas. And I'm fully supportive of what the task force uh, has in mind versus a quote-unquote market-based solution without any specifics. So um, I, I'm just looking forward to, to to working in the legislature and again making sure that people that don't have access to healthcare now gain that access because we can't let them fall behind.
0: I mentioned that we would talk about housing and I do want to get your thoughts briefly. And unfortunately, we're we're so short on time and there's so many questions that I would love to get to. But, you know, the affordable housing is a challenge in pretty much every corner of the the state. Um, Maybe talk just briefly about how it's presenting in the 28th, how you'd Mm -hmm. like to approach it. Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah. So briefly, uh, we need to create more housing. Uh, There absolutely is a housing shortage in the region, up and down the I-5 corridor, and certainly here in the 28th. And where I differ from my opponent is, uh, he disagrees with me, he says that there isn't a, a problem with uh, housing stock in the, first hand, uh, in the first place and access to that affordable housing. I completely disagree. We need more housing, we need more affordable housing. Uh, you know, We need to come up with, again, work with stakeholders to come up with more creative solutions, so that way people have an affordable roof over their head. Um, because again, you know, this ties into all the other problems I mentioned before, you know, climate change, wildland, urban interface, it's all interconnected. We absolutely need to create more housing. And I think there's some good policies that are being looked at that I'm, that I'm willing to work with stakeholders on to to get us there.
0: I'm going to ask you one last question, because I think it's important. And it's very specific to you as somebody who served in the national guard, uh, you say you would like to expand mental health support for service members. Can you talk about the need here in your district?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So um, a unique situation that happened recently, uh, when everything was shut down because of COVID, uh, the VA hospital at American Lake uh, was completely shut down. So I'm hearing from potential constituents how that gap, that, that lack of service specific to the VA, really left a lot of veterans, a lot of prior service members high and dry. They basically had to figure out their own Needs medically specific to mental health care that literally was not there for them. So we need to put something in place to where if something like this happens again, because you know the VA has had issues, no question. Um, but if you're solely reliant on the VA, we need to be able to quickly fill in that gap because you know that that two week and that two week gap, one month gap in service. Uh, really had a a detrimental effect to veterans in my district, and I'm hearing about it now. So, uh, again, expanded access, better access, uh, more mental health resources, so that way when somebody that does rely on the Veterans Administration and all of a sudden can't, has an alternative immediately so they're not suffering.
0: I will just ask you in closing, I know you've gotten some very high-profile endorsements, including the governor, uh, Senator Patty Murray. Are there one or two others that are particularly meaningful for you?
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, closer here to home, uh, Representative Christine Kilduff, who's not seeking re-election. You know, I, I'm very fortunate to have her support and her endorsement. I think she's done a lot of great work for our district, for our community, for our state. And uh, I couldn't be more more honored to have her endorsement. And I don't know that it necessarily needs to get more high profile profile than that. Uh, I, I, I'm super excited to, to follow in her footsteps. You know, she'll always be there as a, as a source of wisdom and guidance. And uh, I just look forward to uh, following in her footsteps and continuing to do good things for our district um, because her guidance will always be there.
0: Well, the 28th would be fortunate to have you, man, for sure. Um, What sort of help do you need with your campaign at this point? We're in the final stages.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, uh, I'm personally phone banking most days, but uh, my official campaign phone banks are uh, going to be on Saturdays between noon and three. Uh, hop on on. We got Representative Kilmer. Uh, we've got a bunch of local labor groups and local supporters. Uh, uh, um, excuse me, supporting. Uh, yeah, locals and, and unions that are, they're hopping on. So uh, the phone banking would be very appreciative. And then, then obviously uh, donations would be appreciated also. Uh, my opponent got a one-time independent expenditure from the realtors for $180,000. Whereas I am seeking uh, you know, support from grassroots donors, a, a myriad, a, a very diverse group of supporters between environmentalists, labor groups, uh, Native American communities, et cetera, you name it. And I'm really proud to have a diverse group of supporters.
0: Excellent. What is your website so people can go and check it out?
1: com. That's D-A-N-B-R-O-N-O-S-K-E.
0: Dan, thank you so much for joining us tonight, man.
1: Thank you, sir. I appreciate it. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in.
0: We will talk next with Alicia Rule. She is a member of the Blaine City Council. She is also a small business owner and community volunteer and is the past president of the Blaine Downtown Development Association. She is running for state representative in position one in the 42nd L.D. This is a district that includes Blaine, Bellingham, Linden, Lemmy, Everson, and Ferndale. Hello, Alicia. How are you?
2: Hello. I'm doing well. How are you all doing tonight?
0: We're doing great. It is good to see you again. Uh, So, you know... I will just start here with you. When we first spoke uh, a few months ago, we were still kind of assessing the damage of the pandemic at that point and how it was impacting your district, how we might address the recovery. You've been busy as a member of the Blaine City Council and community volunteer uh, helping out in the recovery. I'm wondering if you can just talk a little bit about some of the work that you've been doing during that time.
2: Sure, thank you. It has been a blink of an eye and a very long time all at the same time. It, it, the, the pandemic experience has been a large part of this campaign, not the full part, but um, most of it. And in the beginning, we saw different things than we see now, but for me personally, my small business was hit really hard. Um, most of our practice fell apart and bottomed out within about 48 hours. Uh, that was terrifying. I packed up my things. I came home where my children were not in school and thought, now what? Um, I think there are many small business owners who could probably uh, relate with that in lots of ways. Um, Nonetheless, we've reconvened everything that we're doing. We've rebuilt with a new model and um, all that's happened during the campaign. Lots of other small business owners have done the very same thing in all kinds of creative and a variety of ways. In that really initial part of the pandemic, it was really about meeting people's immediate needs. And so that meant organizing food for people who needed it and organizing uh, homemade masks. I mean, we didn't even know. We were kind of trying to figure it out as we were going, but we're day to day watching the news and trying to figure out what this meant and how we could best help people. So that's really what I did at a really grassroots level initially. Uh, As we learned a little bit more on the city level, we were doing emergency response essentially, and then making a lot of decisions about how do we treat staff and who who comes into the office and what does it look like if we do remote uh, business in a city and all kinds of questions that we hadn't really thought of an answer before this. but then we've really seen some pretty neat things. Our community, not surprisingly, got creative in solving a lot of problems. And it was neat to see people come together, especially in those early times. We saw the amount of homemade mask making in this community was really would just blow you away. Um, and these people were making masks you know, enough to make their hands hurt. So organizing that was kind of a big effort at the time. But then we rolled out into doing more official city work, and a lot of the things that I focused on was how can we support small businesses? Historically, in my Blaine City Council role, I've worked really hard with our small businesses and building a downtown and rejuvenating that area, which has been incredibly helpful to our local economy. And the the threat that this pandemic made um, toward those business owners, which are our neighbors and our friends, was palpable. So we have done a lot of things to be able to support them at a city level. And then of course worked with state and federal government to, and and private, to put together a package that works to support small businesses. And that went from everything from small, uh, you know, low interest loans. We did a lot of changes around where people could open their restaurants and where people, where and how people could do business. Really thinking about new solutions to Uh, a new problem that quickly had to be solved, which is how do we keep people safe? But we need to keep people moving and keep people coming and doing business in Plain.
0: That is the the $64,000 question, isn't it? I mean, given everything that we've learned, how do we going forward balance the the public health needs with uh, economic needs?
2: Well, I think one of the key factors that we, we learned in the pandemic, we already knew this, but to actually experience it, It became very clear very quickly that our workforce is our economy, and we have to keep our workers safe and healthy. And if we don't do that, our economy will never recover. So um, I think we continue moving forward with the new information that we have, the newer information. We certainly know we don't know everything. There are a lot of questions out there that are still looming, but we do know a lot more than we did in the very beginning. And one of the things is just that, you know, masks do really help. Uh, stop the spread of this so we can now know with that information this is really helpful we can do some things if we're wearing a mask Um, outdoors is even better so we have been thinking on the Blaine City Council what can we do to grow and support business knowing those two things and pushing a lot of things outdoors Um, moving forward at the state level Those values still have to be pushing us forward. We have to be able to make sure that workers are safe and protected in their workplace. We have to make sure that they have the opportunity to have enough space amongst themselves and that they have access to PPE, which I would love to see made right here in Washington State instead of waiting on a foreign country to supply us with what we need to stay safe.
0: Yeah, I mean, I know that this is a big part of your platform, job development. Uh, You said that the middle class is is endangered in the 42nd. I'm wondering if you could just get uh, a little more specific about in what ways and then how and where you would like to see uh, more well-paying jobs in your district.
2: Yeah, you know. Interestingly enough, this is one of the main reasons I ran in the first place before we knew that a pandemic was even coming. Uh, I have three kids. They're the fifth generation in my family to live in this county. So my great grandparents immigrated here to start farming and my whole family still lives here. We love it. And it's really nice to be able to stay connected to all those those folks. And I don't want to move. And I definitely want my children to have the opportunity to be able to stay here. But here's the reality for, for them and for really all the voters that I've been talking to. This is tough because the wages just are not keeping up with the cost of housing that just continues to skyrocket. Now at a pandemic and all the economic uncertainty, and we haven't seen house uh, the cost of housing go down. In fact, we've seen it go up. So the real people who are at risk are the people who are having a hard time before before, and maybe renters who now have to think about, will somebody be selling my my home and do I have enough saved up to be able to move and what do rents elsewhere look like? And I hear this over and over and over talking with voters. Um, So I really think a lot about what ways can we support our economy better. I think we need to increase manufacturing jobs here. I think we need to look at um, supporting union jobs because those come with the wages that we need. And I think we need to support our small businesses. In Whatcom County, we really do have a lot more small businesses than a lot of other places. It's not only a practical issue for us, but it's really something that's important to us. We like character here. We like the, the uh, you know the idea of supporting our neighbor and supporting our friends in their business. Um, And we've just got a lot of folks who have poured their whole hearts into their small business. So I'd love to be able to support them better moving through this.
0: You're touching on a lot of things here, uh, housing uh, and, and and other areas. and a lot of this, I think, on your platform comes down to issues of equity and access. And another big part of your platform is child care. Um, you are you know you would like to lower cost and increase access. and we know that this is such an important area for working families, especially right now. How do you see the legislative role in all this in helping families and individuals uh, get greater access to child care?
2: Well, this is one of those pieces of the puzzle that just isn't working for a lot of people at a ground level. Uh, as a mother of three, I can tell you firsthand that this is something that impacts me every day. Um, quality child care, it's not just access, but quality child care. Our children deserve good quality early learning. And that's an investment that pays off in not only our economic state, but also we're investing in our future. So I, I believe that our children deserve that. And I also believe that our families deserve options and choices that fit them. Um, this is also an economic question because we have a lot of families who just aren't able to make this work. It's the, it's the squeeze again. It's one of the pieces that just doesn't work for people. So I'm really proud of being able to support the Boys and Girls Club here in Blaine. Um, that's something that we have had to work really hard, You know. Facing difficult budget decisions every step of the way, it's, we have to choose what's important to us. And we have continued over the years to support our local Boys and Girls Club because we know it's how people can work. Um, That piece of the economy, it's not only supporting families in their day-to-day life, but it's supporting their ability to work and contribute to our economy and keep it moving. Without childcare, it's very, very difficult to be able to keep people working.
0: And then, of course, another area of inequity is healthcare. Uh, we we see this all the time, and I I'm wondering how you see the pathway to access to affordable healthcare for Washington. You have interesting ideas here.
2: Yeah, I really see this every day because I'm working uh, in the healthcare field. So, what's really hard on families is that most families are paying exorbitant amount of money just to have health insurance. And then when they go to use it, it's not paying what they need. So the last figure I saw, I think, was a family of four is paying something around $29,000 a year just for healthcare on an average. And that's not, you know, obviously that's not considering if you have a major, major issue. Um, That's untenable. (laughs) We just can't continue like that, that in in the piece of this middle-class squeeze that I keep talking about, is one of the places we've got to get those prescription drug costs down. That also impacts our seniors quite a bit. And uh, I'd love to be able to see us work harder to keep building out some of the things that are working. I am so grateful that we live in a state where children especially have access to good healthcare through uh, AppleCare. And I do appreciate that very much. And I don't take that for granted. I think we need to continue building on these these building blocks where we have um, the opportunity to support families by a lot of different options that work for them.
0: I regret that we have limited time. I really do. There are always so many more questions that I want to ask <laughs> them than we actually are, are able to get to. But one specifically, you you mentioned your work as a mental health care professional. So let's talk about that. Um, there are gaps in our mental health coverage that have really been coming to light. I mean, this this was uh, this came up in the gubernatorial debate. So this is something that's getting a lot of attention. Maybe just talk a little bit about the impact of the pandemic on mental health and the need for expanded mental health services right now.
2: Well, the trouble is we had a a major problem before the pandemic even hit. Um, I have had teenagers or other clients come to my door and say, I just spent all, you know, my office door, I just spent all night at the emergency room. Um, I'm still suicidal. There's nowhere for me to go. Can you help me? And when you look at the eyes of those teenagers that I'm, there's two I'm thinking of in particular and know that they're standing there holding a a list of outpatient therapists that are awful and all pretty well inaccessible for people who don't have a lot of money. It's terrifying to think how many people that's impacting. Uh, I can also think of times when I've had Clients who are survivors of sexual assault, who have had uh, folks do their exam that aren't specialized in this area. There's all these kind of different ways that we are failing our folks because this is, you know, mental health issues. They can impact anybody on any given day. I don't work in an area and I've done a lot of different jobs, not just private practice. I never have worked in an area that I'm working with people who are different than you or me. This is just our people. In fact, I think I saw today about forty percent, forty to fifty, depending on uh, the detail of the stat, of people are experiencing depression and anxiety that have hit clinical levels during this pandemic. So not only was it a problem before at every level, but now we're looking at it being a real crisis. People don't have access to any level of of care, and you know, never mind the fact that chronically mentally ill people really don't have a plan. we don't have a plan for them. And that is often a danger to them and a danger to society and a public safety issue.
0: We're very fortunate to have you doing the work that you do. Um, I, I will just say that. I, we, let's end here, because um, when we spoke uh, in preparation for this, you said that you see this election as a referendum on how we see ourselves as people in, in kind of a value based way and what sort of country we want to be and what values we would like to guide us. So I'll just ask your thoughts generally on that and then also how you're seeing that play out in your race.
2: You know, this one's a really tough one because it feels really personal. but. I have really been reflecting on why I am running for office and why it is that someone like me would step up and do something really hard and sometimes really go against the grain of just the local culture here. But I, as the election has moved forward both in my race and on a and on national level The question that just keeps coming to mind to me is, who who are we? Who are we and who do we want to be? My whole family and my community raised me right here in Whatcom County, and they raised me with these values that were very strong in, in every way, whether it be the school or my family or neighbors, that was, we really take care of each other. And when things get hard, we step up and we help each other out. And that is something that's never been partisan and how we treat each other has never been partisan. And all of a sudden I'm facing this question of, how do we who, who are we? Who are we and who do we wanna be? And what values do we want to leave in our community on a day-to-day basis for our children and our grandchildren? And I really think that it really comes down to that at every piece of legislation. And we've gotta look at how are we treating each other? How are we treating each other and, and who do we wanna be?
0: It's a great question. Um, And I think it's one that we're currently trying to uh, we're we're trying to sort that out um, race by race here. Um, I'll just ask you before I let you go. uh, What sort of help do you need on your campaign?
2: Thank you. Yes, we would love your help in any way that suits you. Uh, We've got phone banking going on every night and we have text banking and we certainly could use any financial support that feels right because, getting the word out in a pandemic comes with extra challenges and that's really what it takes.
0: Well, uh, I wish you the best. You are awesome. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us tonight. Thank you. We turn next to Sharon Shoemake. She is representative for the 42nd LD in Position 2, and she serves as the vice chair of the Rural Development, Agriculture, and Natural Resources Committee. She also sits on the Energy and Environmental Committee, as well as the Transportation Committee in her professional life. She is a professor of economics and energy policy at Western Washington University in Bellingham. Hello, Representative Shoemake. It's so good to see you.
3: Hi, how are you? Thanks for having me on.
0: Before we go any further, can I just say you are hilarious on Twitter and TikTok? I try. Uh, everybody should check you out, uh, follow you on both platforms. You're, you're you're awesome. So, you know, when we first spoke, you told me that you didn't see yourself running for office until it became clear that, that your community needed somebody to step up and lead. So let's start here. What were some of the areas that were lacking leadership and how have you sought to address those?
3: Yeah. So the short answer is my state representative didn't believe climate change was real. And, you know, If you don't believe that, what else do you got that I don't agree with you on, right? What else are you lying about if you're lying about the basic science? Um, I always saw myself as the, like, advisor to a policy person. Like, that was the goal that I wanted to be when I became an economist. I never thought I'd run for office.
0: Well... You are, and you did, and you're in. So let's talk about your key platform, the the climate. Um, You Prime sponsored a number of bills in the last session that you say create energy and resource efficiencies while also protecting the climate and saving taxpayer dollars. That sounds awesome and also really challenging. Uh, Can you tell us about some of those bills?
3: Yeah. Um, so our energy sector is really heavily regulated. And one of the big reasons why is that you think about the energy sector and it's a lot of monopolies, right? So we only have one electricity provider in an area. We only have one natural gas provider in an area. Um, and so when we think about those monopolies, we can't just allow them to whatever they want. We t- tend to regulate them and we regulate them on this cost plus um, basis. So it's the super regulated area. And they're regulated on all these measures in terms of the monopoly, some on the environment. And when it comes to figuring out, well, how do you make it green? We also have to think through a lot of those regulations as well. So sometimes the definition of what is green energy, the definition of what is renewable hydrogen, we have to go back and we have to revise it and think through what is really renewable. So the first bill I passed um, was actually looking at some of those definitions, clearing some of that up about some transparency, in what is green energy and what is the energy mix in your sector? And I found out later once we passed the bill that they'd been trying to get it passed for a long time. This was a problem with the Department of Commerce. They just needed a nerd flailing. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so that was my nerdy bill. They're all nerdy. Um, the other two that I worked on that were climate bills was one was a bill that um, it doesn't even have my name on it. It came over from the Senate. We dropped a House version. But um, we want to see part farmers as a partner in addressing climate change so they're impacted by it but there's also a lot of on farm opportunities to sequester carbon and sometimes people don't realize that farmers really are environmentalists they're just sometimes a little bit different than urban environmentalists less patagonia more you know carhartt um, and so Let's make this another revenue stream. Let's make this something that's profitable. to suck carbon out from the atmosphere and maybe someone who wants to burn a little bit more pays them to sequester it for them. It doesn't really matter to the earth and you get some co-benefits as well. The third one is what I was really excited about and I got this idea by reading an economics paper and it was talking about our natural gas distribution network. So like I said, there's a monopoly. And so we regulate them by saying, okay, well, you can get your costs back that you use plus a little rate of return. But we have to be careful on we regulate, well, what counts as a real cost? And what is just you building stuff so they can get that rate of return and pass it on to the ratepayers, right? So they could pass on the cost of the lost gas. So anything that leaked out of these pipes, that could be passed on because that's part of doing business. But it wasn't clear that they could pass on the cost of actually going ahead and preemptively fixing those pipes unless it was a danger to human health and safety. And so we wrote a bill saying that, well, how about you do a cost benefit analysis? So let's calculate the cost of the lost gas, because there was some evidence that you would save money if they did more of this regulation, because you're paying for gas that you don't get. So let's say that if the cost of lost gas, plus the environmental, plus the human health and safety, write together a formula and say that if the benefits are higher than the cost of fixing it, then we want you to go ahead and do it. And again, super nerdy bill, But in parts of the country, we saw that Rhode Island had to revise its emissions inventory 50% higher because methane is a potent greenhouse gas. So this is something that comprehensive climate policy may not have gotten to. And it's something that, you know, saves you money, cuts carbon emissions, creates pipe fitter jobs and protects human health and safety. I mean, that's four wins. That's a pretty big deal. But you had to go through and dig into all the policy to understand why you need to do it. And we had a whole lot of meetings to figure out how we wanted to do it.
0: Well, this is why it takes you know, an economist and somebody with a policy background to be able to navigate those sorts of things, and particularly on the economist side, what you're talking about here really is creating incentives. And you know, as we transition into the green economy, this is the kind of thing that's going to impact your district for years to come. Um, so just generally speaking, how do you think about, in the 42nd, the transition from fossil fuels to green jobs?
3: Yeah, so we have some big refineries in our district, um, two pretty big ones, Phillips 66 and uh, BP. And then there's some other ones just south of us, and some people actually commute back and forth. Um I've always said that our climate policy, our innovation as Washington State, isn't necessarily bringing our CO2 emissions down to zero, although that's great if we can get it to net zero. Um, but really, our gift to the world is showing that you can do this, you can do it cost effectively, and you can do it in a way that's politically popular. Because if we just were to zero out our carbon emissions tomorrow, that'd be great, that'd be important, but it's not going to get us to where we need to go. We need to see international innovation. We need to see national collaboration. And when you look at who's in state legislatures, who's in Congress, a lot of times that pipeline is people coming from you know, great places like school boards and cities and you know wonderful public servants, but it's not always a pipeline of energy nerds who wanna think through what is the return on investment in this particular technology, right? And so if we want them to really solve those problems, They're confusing, they're probably boring to most people. Um, I happen to love them, but I know I'm weird. Um, (laughs) And so let's get solutions that work, right? And that's what I think we should be doing as Washington State, is that if we can show that, you know, we do a policy and like all my people at refineries lose their jobs and we have massive unemployment, nobody's gonna copy this. And so I certainly don't wanna see that as a policy. Um, We have to figure these pieces out and we're gonna do so carefully.
0: Then let's talk about something that you uh, recently told me about that I think is incredibly innovative. This is uh, you've been working with some other members of the legislature on new financing around something you call a green recovery bond. So, what is a green recovery bond, and how does it work? And and I will just sort of front end this question by saying there really is an economic gain to this, in addition to it being the right thing to do.
3: Yeah. So we just got hit by we're in a really weird recession right now. Um, there's nothing fundamentally wrong with the economy in January, but we got hit with deadly virus. Um, so we're going to need a different tool to get out of this. The other thing that we're seeing with recessions is the last recession. We saw that, you know, kind of wealthy people and people in Seattle, they recovered first and the rest of us had a much longer recovery. And so how do we think about these kind of two facts that some people are doing fine? Some people are really hurting and that the last recovery was very unequal. Right? And so what we've been talking about is this green recovery bond. So the idea would be that we would um, bring forward revenues from a pollution tax to today. So we would be able to bond this. That's the bonding part of it. We would be bringing this forward and we would be um, able to invest it in kind of green infrastructure plans. So one of the biggest bangs for your buck is forest health. Um, so we had these nasty fires last uh, this summer That was partially climate change, as Dan was talking about, but some of it could also be mitigated with some forest management. And so we've had some proposals come through. These are good jobs that you could be doing in rural areas. Sending people out to do some of this work when they'd otherwise be sitting at home. I mean, this is a great deal in terms of getting rural economies back and in terms of reducing pollution. And, you know, personally, I would have spent a lot of money to not have to breathe in those smoky airs. And you think about those communities that were impacted. I mean, it was heartbreaking watching Eastern Washington burn. So I think we all care a lot about that as well. Another piece of that is there's a lot of infrastructure that needs to be done all over the state. So fixing roads and bridges, preservation and maintenance. Um, Culverts is another big part of this that, you know, we're being fined for not doing this important work. Um, And then the third piece is high-speed internet. So we could build out the backbone of internet around the state. And what you see is that if Comcast goes ahead and builds it, so if Comcast builds the internet connection to a small town in Whatcom County, then they get to charge whatever they want, right? They get to charge whatever they want and they get to give you bad service because they have a monopoly there. If the state builds out those backbones, then we can allow various ISPs to kind of connect and there's a little bit more competition even in these smaller communities. So you get better service and lower prices than you would with a monopoly. So this is something that again, is gonna produce jobs all over the state. So kind of kickstart those rural economies, but it also sets us up on a better basis for growth as we go forward, right? So same with infrastructure, same with forest health. All three of these are investments that set us up for a better basis of economic growth. And we think about how the pandemic might be Fundamentally changing the nature of work. Like um, I heard the t- term the other day, Zoom towns, which really made me laugh. Um, are people going to be, you know, plugging in from rural areas where there's, I think, a higher quality of life? Um, you can have a little bit more housing for the price and then still be able to connect to your corporate job somewhere else. Well, they're going to need good internet service. They're going to want to be safe from fires and they're going to need good infrastructure to do that. So Let's go ahead and do this work. And then if we're able to share some of this economic prosperity all over our state, I mean, that just seems like another big win and something that we should be doing uh, uh, anyway, but we should especially be doing if. We need to be creating jobs and getting through through a recession.
0: 100% agreed on everything you said. The one thing I can hear critics saying is that something like this might hit uh, poor people disproportionately with things like you know uh, gas and heating costs. Uh, any ideas how you work around that?
3: Yeah, so this is what I've been saying all along: is that it has to be politically popular, right? we can't have this fall on the backs of low and middle income families. And so what we've been, it's actually kind of expensive to send everyone a check. Um, I tried to create a tax and dividend approach where we just gave people back the money, because remember the point of a price on carbon is to increase the price of polluting, not to create money to spend, right? That's actually the mechanism. If the price is higher, then you do less of it. Um, But I think in this case, what we're gonna try and do is we're gonna give people back a $20 per month credit if you're low income. And the easiest way to get that back to people is on their utility bill. So the utilities are actually kind of set up to do this. So you'd get a $20 per month credit on your utility bill. And one of the things that we're seeing right now with the pandemic is that a lot of people who lost their jobs, they're behind in rent, but they're also behind in their utility payments. So this could kind of help them out a little bit in smoothing some of that over. And it also means that, you know, when we look at investments and subsidies for green things. I don't know if you can hear my kids. They just got out of the bath.
0: It's totally um, fine. We can, but it's, it's just great.
3: <laughs> <laughs> um, those it, It's things like electric cars and solar panels. And, you know, you can only put on solar panels if you own your home or you're able to get into some cool community solar program. And if you're buying an electric car, it's probably a new car. And you probably either need to have a charging station at your apartment or, you know, you need to own your home again. And so those are also Difficult things for low income folks to get into. So I say, give them cash for now or through this utility credit. And then as we see more and more solar opportunities, as we decarbonize our electricity, that kind of gets automatically done. And then as we see more used cars kind of come into the market, then we start to see that that becomes a possibility as well. Because used cars are, uh, electric cars are cheaper than gasoline cars if you ignore the upfront costs. The price per mile of using electricity is lower, and there's lower maintenance costs as well.
0: There is so much that I had not only prepared to talk with you about, but would love to talk with you about. I'm going to have to be very selective here, as we only just have a couple minutes. I will ask you about housing, because I know that this is a big part of your platform. The governor recently extended the eviction moratorium. It is my understanding that your opponent is against the moratorium. What are your views here?
3: Yeah. Um, I mean, the, the moratorium was a difficult decision and I don't envy the governor in having to make it, but you can't evict people in the middle of a pandemic. Um, first of all, it would probably spread the virus if we're increasing the homeless population. But a lot of these people lost their jobs, their livelihood through no fault of their own. And so it threw a wrench into some of these economic relationships because remember a lot of these landlords, I mean, they're not necessarily all wealthy either. This might've been their retirement fund. Um, And so we need to see the federal government step up and help people out with some landlord mitigation fees. Um, The federal government can and should be printing money at a time like this. And they can and should be trying to repair some of these economic relationships because that's gonna be the real cost of the pandemic. It's not so much so many months lost of work, But it's if we break these economic relationships, then, you know, if you've run a small business, you know that one of the most expensive things is hiring people. It's time-consuming. It's hard to find people and training them. And so the more we can kind of keep people together in that economic and just kind of a a point of with social distancing, then the better off we'll be and the quicker of a recovery we'll have.
0: Breaking relationships with the people that you hire, breaking relationships with the clients who have come to rely on your services and and on and on and on. Um, Yeah. I I will just ask you in closing, you've been very, very carefully talking with voters, being very socially distant, doing lit drops um, in your very purple district. I'm curious, what what are some of the things that stand out to you about what you're hearing from people, about what they want from their state representation?
3: Yeah. So I think everyone's just kind of tired of the division. People really want us to come together and solve problems. So we've seen this really divisive rhetoric on the national scene, um, especially from the Republicans. It's been law and order messaging, which is meant to kind of scare you and make you think that the other team isn't patriotic or real Americans. And unfortunately we started to see some of this in Whatcom County as well, but I don't think that's who we are. And I've, I've been on the phones and now, you know, socially distanced doors and what i think is that we actually have a lot more agreement than the slogans suggest so if you when people talk at me with the slogans they're like deep on the police don't you dare deep on the police um but really when you start to talk about it everyone wants to see better mental health care treatment everyone wants to see alternatives to incarceration everyone wants to see an education system that's equitable and doesn't just you know discriminate on the education you get based on your zip code right and so you hear this, you hear this from teachers, you hear this from police, you hear this from hospital administrators who are tired of being you know the last step in the mental health care pipeline and picking people up. Um, and so it's up to us to solve it. and we have to solve it together. Um, and so sometimes what I tell people is, you know you can never pay me to run for Congress. like that looks awful and dysfunctional and I don't like to fly back and forth across the country. But the other real reason I wouldn't wanna do it is that we're much more functional in Olympia. And maybe that's because we've been in democratic control the last few years, but it's, it's way more fun to do that than it looks like at the national scene. And we are committed to working together. Um, we really do better when we sit down with people with diverse interests. Um, you hear things around, you, you, know, you may not agree with them on everything, but we all have our own biases. And so having someone poke holes on those biases, I think makes us better. It makes us better, corporations say that that makes better teams. And I think that makes us a better team in the legislature. And something else that I'm really proud of is, um, my caucus is really diverse. You know, I, I look at some of the city councils around here that are having to deal with Black Lives Matter. I mean, we have this incredibly strong Black Caucus that is doing a lot of this work and guiding us and making us all better people. So. Diversity and lots of different strengths really just leads to better government.
0: Well, so working together. <laughs> we, we yes, we want to send you back to Olympia for sure. What is your uh, what's your website?
3: Uh, Sharon and then the number four and then Watcom.com.
0: We so appreciate uh, talking with you again. I Like I said, I, I find all this fascinating. I, I could talk with you for hours, but we're going to have to leave it here. Uh, Representative Shumik, thank you so much. Thank you. April Berg is school board director for the Everett School District and she also serves on the Mill Creek Planning Commission. She is running for representative in position 2 in the 44th LD. This is a district that includes Snohomish, Mill Creek, Lake Stevens and Marysville. April, thank you What's so you much here? for being here.
4: Thank you for having me. It's always great to talk with you.
0: Well, it's good to see you. And you know, I will just mention for listeners who may not know that you were in a serious car accident uh, after the primary. How are you how are you doing now? Yeah.
4: I'm doing better. Um, I tell you, folks who are really generous with their thoughts, their prayers, um, support with meals, and I'm feeling uh, better. I am using a cane instead of a walker, and I'm um, able now to do a little bit more time outside of my back brace. So I tell you, the progress is going in the right direction.
0: Well, I'm I'm so glad to hear that. And I will bring up something that you wrote on social media uh, after your accident when you were reflecting uh, during your recuperation. And you noted that if this had happened earlier in your own professional career, in your own professional journey, that it might have derailed things.
4: Absolutely, Yeah. And
0: it's, and it's an enormous question to start with, but I'll just ask you, how do you envision a society that better supports working people throughout their career?
4: Yeah, I tell you, so that's, um, you're right, I wrote about this on my social media because it um, it really dawned on me one day that if this had been, um, you know, 10 or 20 years ago, I wouldn't have had that same successful recovery and, and really peaceful recovery time that I have now. Um, and a lot of that has to do with our social safety net and and how we deal with things like substance abuse. Um, homelessness, mental health issues, and and we don't have the safety nets that we need for for folks going through and struggling through those things. So, for example, in my journey, you know, I'm I've spent almost 12 weeks not being able to really be on my feet and really be active. And if I was working a shift job, if I was a shift worker where I had to be on my feet and and show up at um, different times, you know, not having a real secure schedule, that wouldn't be possible. Um, if I didn't have health insurance like I do, um, I, that wouldn't be possible to have the physical therapy and the the specialists that are working with me to get me back on my feet. Um, and I'll tell you just a little antidote from that night. It was, you know, it was primary night when we got hit. And uh, one of the most amazing um, angels slash bystanders that helped me physically get out of the car and, and uh, call 911 and, and get us where we need to be. Well, at one point she she snapped a picture of us and she goes, you know, I, I'm not going to post this on Facebook and I don't want to violate your privacy, but I got to get this picture to my boss because I have to prove why I'm late for work. And just let wow. that sink in for a little bit. Um, so imagine being in such a, a situation. And I have no idea that, again, she's an angel. I, I don't know her situation or scenario, but but, but t- to have that level of stress to where you're, you know, witnessing and helping in this huge accident and to say, my boss won't even believe me and, and some part of my employment is at risk if I don't show proof. So. That that's not where we should be, right? We're better than that as a society. So, um, I, you know, I was I was thankful. I am thankful every day for her and her, um, you know, uh, her heroics in that situation. But I'm also just prayerful for, for whatever scenario she's in, where where that proof was needed.
0: And it just shows that we have a long way to go and a lot of work to do there. And you know, Absolutely. you mentioned healthcare as well. Um, and you noted that, you know, uh, you happen to have good access to health care, but not that not everybody does. I'll yes. just ask you, because this comes up quite a bit. How yeah. do you see the pathway to a place where all Washingtonians can have access to that quality health care?
4: Absolutely. And that's it's um, for me, healthcare is a human right. And so when we talk about healthcare, we're we're talking about a human right. And so for Washingtonians, you know, we've, we've made bigger strides than some other states, but we're not there yet. And so we've got to expand the public option, we have to make that an all in option so that more people are covered. Um, We have to uh, really work on our transparency and our accountability in um, healthcare billing and processes. That's another huge, huge piece. Um, And and then I would say too, you know, as we're talking about and just socially uh, in society about equity, right? We're gonna have another big equity test come before our society that deals with healthcare and it's with the vaccine. And so as we're talking about healthcare and as we're talking about getting more folks covered, we're gonna have to talk about not only um, a fast effective Um, vaccine that's, you know, of course has some efficacy behind it, but we're going to have to talk about equitable solutions to make it available. And I tell you, Stephen, when I'm in Olympia, we're going to have those conversations sooner rather than later, because we all know um, where it could end up, right? I mean, this this could be another terrible, terrible scenario that we've seen for um, already marginalized communities.
0: And yeah, this is certainly not the sort of thing where we want a, a meritocracy uh, deciding exactly. who is going to <laughs> get is, vaccinated and who is not. That is exactly right. Mm-hmm. I, I, I want to talk next about one of the most important parts of your platform, which is education. Uh, mm-hmm. You are, are an Everett School Board director. We know this is a difficult time for educators uh, all up and down the the board. I'm wondering how you are navigating the challenges of educating uh, our children during the pandemic, and I'll ask you this not just professionally. But also yeah. because you're a mother, uh, how you're doing it personally.
4: Yeah. And that's a great question. I'll tell you. Um, and, and I've told a lot of folks, um, you know, out there who, who've heard me talk before. But my daughter's high school was the first high school in the nation with a covid positive student. So when, it, when we talk about educating in this new normal, I had to do it first. Right. As a as a mother, but also as a leader. Um, and so that gave us some opportunities in the Everett School District, right? To, to literally write the playbook that a lot of other districts are using right now as we're dealing with COVID and, and educating, um, doing continuous learning online. So a couple of things there, you know, the first priorities was to get folks what they needed in terms of food and emergency childcare, right? So you got to take care of the basics before we can take care of, um, you know, the other things. And that other thing was continuous learning. So we also want to make sure folks had hotspots and laptops so that they could have the technology they needed to Educate their kiddos, um, and so and that went for my my family as well, right? Both my girls have school issued uh, laptops <laughs> so that they can do schoolwork at home. Um, but the other piece of it too is making sure that they are um, social and emotionally uh, cared for in this new normal. So now that we've transitioned, you know, post uh, post spring and, and we've gone through the summer, and we were able to put together a really robust plan to connect and engage with all of our kids in the district. And I'm happy to say that the majority of districts in our state are doing the same thing, so we're not forgetting the whole child, right? We're looking at all all of the components that make um, education uh, necessary, which isn't just the reading, writing, and arithmetic, right? It's it's that emotional well-being and that wholeness that during a pandemic is really, really difficult. So we're doing that through a lot of innovative um, synchronous and asynchronous learning, a lot of amazing online technology, but really it's a lot of uh, caring teachers and staff that are actually reaching out to kids every day, um, virtually, on Zoom, telephone, whatever it takes to make sure they're engaged uh, in learning. And so the, the same goes for our household. You know, we've got learning times and time at the kitchen table where we're doing school or they're telling me what they did in school. Um, but I'm really making sure that I'm engaged because right now as a parent, um, and for all you parents out there, you're partners with your district. So it's it's not a, a one woman or one man show, right? This is, we're all in this together. So, so make sure you're partnering with your districts and your teachers to make sure um, your, your kids are engaged.
0: It's an extraordinary time, but I would also zoom back a little bit and just talk about mm-hmm. your time during uh, with both the Edmonds and Everett School Districts. And I'd love to give you the floor for just a moment to just kind of talk briefly about some of your broader achievements during that time.
4: Yeah, absolutely. And thank you for letting me say that. It's, it's um, whenever I talk about my achievements in the Everett School District especially, it starts with that COVID support, right? Because that's that's what people are thinking about, and that was the most recent thing. But but there was a time before COVID, um, for all of us
0: leaders and directors. It's hard to believe, but there was a time It's hard to believe COVID. that there were things
4: that we did, and, <laughs> and they sound so, you know, just so, oh, you know, like, oh, fluffy and warm. But but we did, uh, some of the things that I was able to accomplish um, in Edmonds was having a school garden policy. And that was really important uh, to me is to have a policy around having school gardens. It was an equity issue. A lot of our wealthier schools had school gardens and our lower income ones didn't. And it all hinged on not having a comprehensive policy. So being able to get stakeholders together to make that policy was really important, meaningful, and I'm glad to say successful. Um, the other thing, uh, you know, while in Edmonds, I was able to increase the teaching and learning budget by $800,000. And that was huge because I really believe that we need um, teaching and learning to be at the forefront of our budgetary discussion so that we're, as we're looking at textbooks and textbook replacements, that they're on a reasonable cycle, which is right around seven years, right? So so just think of your kiddo learning a language and that language, uh, the country they're talking about doesn't have the euro yet. Right, so that's that's not that's not good. <laughs> that's, that means it's a little outdated. So, so that was another one. Um, and I'll tell you, forever, we've done some amazing things, even in the short time I've been in the district. One of the things this year we were able to launch was a Spanish immersion elementary school. Um, and so, having that type of choice program available for our kids and our families in our district is absolutely huge. And we did it during a pandemic. So I tell you what, the best is yet to come. We've got some amazing programs that we want to uh, be able to offer to parents in terms of choice in our district. So, um, and then, you know, just other things that I've done is just advocating for our homeless youth and and really making sure that um, equity and equity conversations are at the forefront. And as a little uh, preview to some discussions that we are having um, is just getting something as simple as a a land acknowledgement at the beginning of our school board meetings, right? So, and and I say similar, Simple, not to not to belittle it, but simple and like, why weren't we doing this before? Um, this is something that, that every public entity should do: acknowledge the land that we're on before we start our deliberative business. So, um, so that's some of the the, the kind of feathers I've I, I think I've put in my hat when I've been on both of these boards. But I tell you, it, it's uh, it's a group effort, right? Being on a school board is a team sport. So I've only been able to make those achievements because um, I've had other directors that have been able to get on board with me.
0: Yeah, yeah, completely understood on that. And you you bring up funding issues. And um, Mm -hmm. because of budget shortfalls and the EFRC has adjusted them upward, but we're still looking at profound shortfalls, Uh, it's going to be a challenge funding our schools next year. And you say on your website that we need to update the prototypical school funding model. Can you explain what you mean by that and and how you'd like to change it?
4: Well and thank you for asking because a lot of people kind of just kind of nod their head and go oh yeah yeah yeah. <laughs> so so the the fundamental uh, part of the the prototypical school funding model it's it's how we how we allocate dollars right that's all it means it's a big wonky term for how we allocate funds and the problem with it the problem with this model is the staff ratios right so this model is old it's been updated a few times but the ratios just aren't correct um so the the ratios of counselors Um, even janitorial staff, uh, school nurses, especially, it is just, you're talking like one school nurse for maybe six or 700 kiddos. And actually when I say one, I'm talking about like 0.88 school nurses for, for hundreds upon hundreds of kids. And so as we're in this public health crisis in a pandemic, is that enough nurses? Absolutely not. But is that what's funded at the state level? Yep. And is it fully funded? You betcha. Um, and that's the problem. So we went through McCleary and we got this fully funding of a model that just is is outdated. Um, so that's a conversation we've got to have in this next session, because if by updating the model, we're going to get our kids more services, especially during this pandemic.
0: And I'll ask you uh, straight out. How does your approach there differ from that of your opponent?
4: Yeah. And that's a great question. I think when, um, in big ways. So my opponent is, um, he's been advocating openly going back to a 2017 budget. Everything needs to be cut. Everybody needs to tighten their belt. And I, and I, I hear that, right? Like it, for some reason that knee jerk, you know, cut everything. But the problem with that is the majority of those cuts are education and social services that we need most. And so when I talk with folks about the scenario that we're in right now, yes, it's a recession, but truly Truly, it's a disaster. And when you're in a disaster, you don't go to a hurricane victim and say, hey, you don't really need that new roof. And you know did, did you need that, that kitchen table? I, I think that's just a, that's a luxury. No. You say, how do I make you whole? what do you need in this moment? How can we get there together? And that's the difference in approaches is that we're going to come out of this with me better than we came in. Um, With my opponent, he's looking at this dark, desolate um, view of society that really has us going back, um, you know, years, if not decades, and not just in terms of budgetary policy, but also in terms of um, social gains that we've had and in terms of hard-fought workplace gains that we've had. So it's um, it's a very... uh, uh, looking backwards kind of approach but but honestly it really it hurts people and it hurts families at the end of the day
0: and it doesn't work <laughs> i might just have it and it doesn't
4: work <laughs> i know it, it, it's, it's kind of like unfortunately right we've tried it 2008 we tried we did austerity and we did the, the cut everything off and and now we're barely recovered from that and now we've got another crisis and so to cut more it just would be inhumane <laughs>
0: I want to shift gears and talk about your other professional capacity as a planning commissioner. Um, and let's talk about growth uh, a little bit. Uh, during our first discussion a few months back, we heard from a Lake Stevens resident who was concerned about development in the area, uh, the impact mm-hmm. on local businesses, especially yeah. the traffic on Highway 9. So as planning commissioner, how do you balance the needs mm-hmm. of community growth with maintaining the quality of life for, for residents who are already there?
4: Absolutely. And that's a great question. I I always laugh because, you know, we're planning commissioners and I always say, well, we plan for it. But and it seems like one of those uh, you know, kind of shrug your shoulders. And of course, but, but honestly, that's how we do it, right? So in Mill Creek, we're in the middle of a comprehensive uh, plan, I think it's a 20 year plan that we're updating and and talking, of course, about growth. But as a district, the 44th is one of the, um the uh, most rapidly growing districts in the state. Snohomish County is the fastest growing county in the state. So we're all about growth. And, and the, the key there, and what I talk with constituents about a lot is embracing it and planning for it. So part of what I want to do when I'm Olympia is being on the transportation committee planning for projects that will alleviate some of the traffic headaches that we have but it will embrace growth because at the end of the day we want it just for as that resident said right we want our businesses and yes we don't want the congestion with it but we want our businesses to grow and thrive we want small businesses to grow and thrive we want our schools to be bigger and better but that means we have to plan for the growth that's coming with it Um, and so some of that is planning for mixed-use housing developments on transit hubs, um, planning for more transportation, public transportation options. So um, part of it, when we're talking about, you know, expanding lanes on Highway 9 and and some different projects, one of the things I really want to make sure is at the forefront is public transportation, because if we do that, that means we can get more people from where they from point A to point B, right, more efficiently um, and quicker for everybody else who do choose um, to do kind of HOV or single single occupancy
0: occupancy vehicles you're touching on this already but i just want to kind of dig a little deeper on the affordable housing aspect of things because i know this is also one of your key issues um and this we know this is something that impacts every part of the state absolutely what are the specific challenges in the 44th and, and and how do you plan on meeting those
4: so specifically in the 44th, we don't have enough affordable housing. And so with that challenge comes a real reckoning with, um, with zoning. And that's again, as a planning commissioner, it's something that we we look at and we talk with citizens about all the time. Um, part of my strategy, and I can say it's been successful thus far, is, is really having conversations about workforce housing and that missing middle. So at the one end, you've got uh, market rate housing, at the other end, you might have low income housing. In the middle, you've got that workforce housing, that missing middle where you see your entry-level firefighters, your call center workers, your folks who just came out of college with a really good job that doesn't quite pay as well as their mom and dad's job. Um, so you, so you want to say, well, how do we get those folks in our community? And when you, when you talk with folks like that about the, that missing middle, they go, well, yeah, we want them here. It's not, you know, this, these are our kids. These are our grandkids. We, we want them around us. Well, great. Now, how do we talk about, um, you know, having housing that meets their needs? Well, a lot of that is, um, you know, uh, it's housing that is not, single-family residents. It's housing that are duplexes and uh mixed-use developments, again, with that businesses on the bottom, and then you've got some different configurations up top, and the key there being on transit hubs. Well, now the conversation comes into really nicely fitting into a, a policy that deals with growth, but it also deals with um, alternative and, uh, and non-single-family housing structures. So uh, that's something, when I talk about it, I can kind of get you know folks who are kind of conservative and kind of liberal all in the same page because they want the same thing, right? They want housing and growth and they want more diversity, um, especially when it comes to income diversity options available for citizens. So I think we can get there because it's one, it's one issue where we're all talking the same language.
0: And you have a number of, I think, very workable approaches there. I would just ask you again, how your approach uh, contrasts with your opponent.
4: Absolutely. Well, I tell you what, we are kind of night and day on this one. Um, he is not looking for that missing middle. He's a He goes very much for that market rate housing. Um, and just kind of, I think uh, the quotes that he uses is, you know, let builders build. Just let them build and let them do. And, and the problem is you've got to have planning commissioners and city councils and other folks in there really working with the builders to to have common sense approaches to the reality of the demographics you're trying to serve. And the reality of that is not everybody can afford market rate housing. Um, and then the problem is when you don't accept that reality, when you don't embrace it with, with strategic planning around it, you end up with aggressive homelessness, which is what we've seen in some of our cities. Um, I'm a housing first proponent. So I believe that before we get folks housing, we can't take care of any other need. So again, we have to have housing to put it put folks into. Um, but the best way to become, to really alleviate and work on homelessness is to not have folks homeless to begin with. And so that means we have to have affordable housing at every level, right? That market rate, that missing middle, as well as low income. My opponent does not see that strategic approach. Um, and as a result, I, I, you know, we uh, rarely are endorsed by, by folks who, um, by the same organization. But in this situation, the master builders um, and their affordable housing council actually came out and endorsed me because they said, you know, April, you know what you're talking about when it comes to housing. And even though I might not agree with those folks on, on a lot of other issues, when it comes to housing housing and building, um, that whole, that weird philosophy that my opponent has about let builders build, they know that that's not what's working um, in today's society. And my approach is more thoughtful um, and actually more doable as we move into this next session.
0: Well, we could keep talking for an hour and I I wish that we could. I know. We're we're out of time (laughs) on this segment. Unfortunately, I will just ask you in closing, uh, what's the sort of help that you need with your campaign?
4: absolutely so right now we need phone bankers um so we are calling we're not canvassing for um, because of the public health crisis so we just need folks to hop on the phone call their uh, call their friends and neighbors on one of our phone banks and um, and talk to them about my campaign and of course the importance of voting so we have phone banks running five days a week and i'll be sure to uh, to get you information on how they can sign up um, and other than that of course donations because we are doing a lot more paid voter contact because again i'm not at doors so I'm, I'm sending out a lot more mail this time.
0: Well, we wish you the best of luck, and it is always a pleasure to talk with you, April Brooke. Thank you so much.
4: Thank you. Have a good day.
0: Thank you again to Dan Bernowski, Alicia Rule, Representative Sharon Shoemaker, and April Berg. Thanks also to Kat Pipkin with the Washington Indivisible Network and Julian Gievsky with Indivisible Tacoma. And that is it for today. Our website is IndivisiblePodcast.org and our email address is IndivisiblePodcast at gmail.com. The Washington State Indivisible Podcast is a production of Get Creative Inc. and is part of the Demcast family of podcasts. Learn more about Demcast at DemcastUSA.com. Thanks this week to Katherine Fysiers. Special thanks to Lori Caldwell and his always my thanks to you for listening. We'll talk to you next time. Bye.